Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain and we are on day 2132 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue with our ongoing series of messages I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week 14 of a 14-week series on the book of James titled, Wisdom is Faith in Action. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. Thanks, Susan. I appreciate the message. It's a good one. I always tell Paula, well, just hang it in the closet and the wrinkles will fall out. She, she doesn't believe me. I guess I'm not quite as particular as she is on, on what I put on or what I wear. So do appreciate the message, Susan. Thank you so much. James, wisdom is faith in action. Can you believe it? This is our 14th but final message in James in our series on the Proverbs in the New Testament, better known as the letter of James. And last week we continued in James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18, as we looked at patience through prayer and what that really means to us. And as we conclude this section on patience and the entire book of James, we want to learn about patience and correction, just like the iron is needed to smooth out those wrinkles in clothing. Sometimes we need a gentle ironing from other people to help us smooth out the wrinkles that we have in our lives. And we're going to be looking at the final two verses of James, James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. So if you'll turn there in your Bibles or in the page 1885 in your pew Bibles, and I'll read the scripture for today. And as always, keep your Bibles open during the message, as I'll be referring back to these verses. James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone else should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Now, if you know anything about swimming or being a lifeguard, lifeguards who have rescued swimmers from drowning know better than most people that those victims try to fight them constantly as they're trying to be rescued because they're in hysteria of that terrifying moment. And they'll either even pull those lifeguards down underneath the water in an uncontrollable panic. Logical reasoning would tell us that if you were drowning, that you wouldn't fight the lifeguard who's trying to save you. But they're hysterical at that point. There's no logical reasoning that that would be their only hope of survival. But a drowning person doesn't think reasonably or rationally. And unfortunately, sometimes that's true of us as believers. If we attempt to rescue somebody who's floundering spiritually because their faith has suffered shipwreck and they've gone overboard, instead of welcoming that encouragement and instruction, they, they often fight us, or we fight the person trying to rescue us. Now, there was a professor in Dallas Theological Th Seminary who's pretty well known, I and mean, he's passed away now, but he was, had a big impact on Dallas Theological Seminary, Howard Hendricks. And he tells a story of a young man who was strained far from the Lord, and he's finally, he was brought back 
to a good relationship with the Lord by a friend who loved him unconditionally. And when he was fully restored, Dr. Hendricks asked him what it felt like when he was strained so far from the Lord. And the man answered, it seemed like I was being pulled, pulled farther and farther away from the shore out into the deep water. And all my friends were standing on the shore, ridiculing me, hurling insults at me, condemning me because of my sin. Then he added, but there was one Christian brother who swam out to me to rescue me, and he wouldn't let me go. I fought him, but he withstood that fighting. And finally, he gra grasped me, and he put a life jacket on me, and he managed to pull me to shore. And by the grace of God, it was that single reason, that one person, that I was restored because he refused to let go of me in my time of troubles. And James doesn't want us to let go of anybody either. And throughout his letter, he stresses the need for faith that works. And that's the whole theme. Wisdom is faith in action. That's the theme of the entire book of James. For example, James tells us, if you say you believe as you should, why do you behave like you shouldn't? And now in these climatic final two verses of the book, James instructs us on how to deal with those who believe like they should, or say they do, but they behave like they shouldn't be. James has developed this theme of real faith produces genuine patience within these last several verses, verses 7 through 20 in chapter 5. But a genuine patient is different from a permissive passiveness. Under the excuse of we just are patiently waiting on the Lord, Christians frequently stand back and patiently watch their fellow Christians sink deeper into sin. But don't forget, the genuine patience is part of a more prominent theme of his book, and that is wisdom is faith in action. We've already seen that the genuine faith manifests itself in all kinds of various works, in stability in chapter 1, in acts of love in chapter 2 and 3, in humility in chapter 4, and in patience that we've seen there in chapter 5. So when it comes to handling those who have strayed away from their walk with the Lord, a genuine work prompted by faith includes prayer and intervention. Throughout the process of confrontation and restoration, we should maintain a dedicated, patient reliance on God. In these last two verses of James, there's four practical questions that we need to ask ourselves. First, is there ever a time when a Christian ought to intervene and deal with the sin of another fellow Christian? Second, at what point should a Christian's patience run out when they're trying to deal with somebody? Third, is that correction of the strained saint solely the work of the Holy Spirit, where we say, well, God has to deal with him, or should we step forward and help that strange saint and become part of that solution also? And fourth, if so, how can we do that without appearing legalistic and, and judgmental? Because didn't James condemn that kind of judgmental attitude earlier in his book? He did. So with those questions in mind, let's examine some of the answers. And I read a story recently about a teenager 
He was taking a metalworking class during summer school. And in the process of that course, a tiny particle or speck of metal embedded in that eye of the cornea of that, that young student. He didn't realize it at first at the time because it was so small. But over the next couple of days, his eye became very irritated and red, and he knew there was something wrong. And his parents took him to an ophthalmologist who quickly discovered there was indeed a metal speck embedded in the cornea of his eye. So the physician calmly rested the son's chin on a brace, numbed the cornea so he wouldn't feel it, and then proceeded to extract that metal particle with care and precision. It was agonizing for the parents to watch that procedure. They could hear that long probe, prong give off the constant ping, 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 as it was trying to pluck that speck of metal out of that patient's eye, that young man's eye. The parents finally had to turn away. It was just too difficult to watch it. But thankfully, that skilled physician removed that speck with delicate care and great patience. And doesn't that story remind us of something else that we went over during the Sermon on the Mount? I think it was back in July when we covered Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. And Jesus gave instructions about removing that speck of the eyes of those people whose sights have been blurred by that speck. But he told us and warned us, well, and why worry about that speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own eye? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, get rid of that log that's in front of your eyes. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck that is in your friend's eye. You see, some people feel that they're called by God to criticize other people even when their own lives are full of chaos and problems. And their own perspective may be clouded by their own sin. And they think, though, that it must be up to them to point out even the most minor flaws in other people's lives. But Jesus condemns that kind of hypocritical judgment of others. And like his older brother Jesus, James spoke out against that hypocritical judge, judgment, slandering, or speaking out against another one when your own life is not clean itself. In light of these warnings, we are to never hastily rush into the practice of spiritual eye surgery ourselves. Only those who are qualified with a clear vision, refined by patience, are equipped to humbly and with great wisdom take on that task of helping another believer to rid that sin of their lives, to go along with them, alongside them, to gently restore them. And even the Apostle Paul talked to, to us about this in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. He said, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back into the right path. Be careful, though not to fall into that same, te same temptation yourself, share each other's burdens, and in this way, fulfill the law of Christ. Now, given the essential warnings and understandings of the serious responsibility that we have to help those who are straying far from their faith, 
we can work on the principle that, principles that James has laid out here for handling those wayward Christians. And let's follow James' reasonable instruction in verse 19, where he says, James is addressing the situation of believers who have gone astray. And he's not talking about here in 19 about unbelievers and bringing them to Christ for the first time. He's talking about those who once were on the straight path and have now veered off. And it comes from an English word that we use for planet. You might say, that's a strange word. It's a Greek word that's translated wandered, or planeo is the Greek word for it. And unlike stars, if you watch stars, they always stay in the same place in the sky and move uniformly with each other, with the other heavenly lights. But the planets tend to drift and wander in the night sky in the same way that individuals have drifted and wandered from the straight path. Now note that this person that James has in mind is somebody who has wandered from the truth. And that refers to the complete context of the scripture, the entire Holy Bible. We can wander from it in a couple different ways. One is to wander from it from a doctrinal perspective, where we get off base and start believing things that are not part of the scripture part of the doctrine of the scripture. They can err on their beliefs, but they also can wander from the truth practically because they're failing to practice what their life is now consist of, their profession in Christ, and they wander off into sin that are not according to God's precepts. And that's why James tells us to be careful to judge, and Jesus told us, because... It's so easy for us to wander off too, but we need to follow the precepts of God's word. And we tend to list some sins as great sins and some sins as lesser sins. But if we, anytime a sin is just diverting from God's precepts that are found in his word, according to his word, and the word is bringing back or brought back and it means turning around and heading in the opposite direction. Now, initially, a saint's walking down the correct path, and they're following God's word, but then all of a sudden, or over a period of time, they take a U-turn, and they start heading in the opposite direction. And you might recall through our study in James that the Jewish believers viewed life's on one of two trajectories, the path that leads to life or the path that leads to death. And believers growing in their faith and good works were on that path of life. They were following what God's precepts told them. Believers growing in faith and good works are on that path. But unbelievers were on the path that leads to death. James says that some believers, though, have then turned. They've made a U-turn. They were on the right path, but they've made a U-turn and are now going in the opposite direction. And such people need to be told and encouraged and exhorted by those who are spiritual that there is no U-turn in God's economy. We're not to make that U-turn and turn from the path that we were on. Now, not everybody is equipped with the right attitude toward wayward saints to help them back on the right path. 
because they may be heading in a different direction themselves. So we need to be careful about that. And as I read in Galatians chapter 6 earlier, it gives a clear instructions on how we're to approach strange saints. Did you catch it? We're to be humble and gentle and wise as we approach those who, who have veered off and are now heading in the on, opposite direction. We need to come alongside them, not out of superiority, but out of love and compassion. We know, can't have a fleshly, harsh, or arrogant attitude toward these people that we're trying to rescue. Though that is often. We see those that are condemning believers are often the ones that have the biggest issues themselves. So I'm deeply concerned that we too often take upon ourselves the practice of digging that speck out of the other person's eye when we haven't first removed that log out of our own eye. A person who relishes the idea of confronting another believer about their sins probably ought not to do it. Furthermore, if one confronts a wandering um, saint but assumes a holier-than-thou attitude, the intervention will do more harm than good. The kind of approach that's, that pushes that speck deeper into that cornea of that boy's eye instead of extracting it. But let's move on to verse 20. James assures us that once we have restored a person onto the right path. If we succeed in our rescue operation through patience, humility, gentleness, and perseverance, he then describes a wholesome and encouraging result of that restoration. And that is once again turning the believer back on that straight path so that they're following God's precepts to straight ahead and they're not going to veer to the right or to the left. James writes, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death. Given that Jewish believers did believe that there were two paths of life, one to the path of life, one to the path of death. This is what James is referring to. The early Christian training, it viewed of one of those two paths, and there was a first century Christian writing called the Didache. And verse 1 of chapter 1 of that, it says there are two paths, the path to life and the path to death. And there's a vast difference between those two. And the Greek word for path or way is hodos, and it refers to a literal road or figuratively about a lifestyle that somebody's on. In verse 20, James uses again that same word of hodos here, the error of their way. So James has figuratively used this term in his mind about however some repentant sins can truly lead to sickness and death if we don't correct those. We looked at that last week in verses 14 through 16, which we viewed that the final destination, if, you don't, if you've made this U-turn on the wrong way and you don't turn around and get back on the straight path, the end there is death and destruction. But it may not be a physical death, but you could destroy your life in the process. Second, James continues, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. You might say, what does that mean? How can we cover a multitude of sins? Not only does the person that's confessing their sins, it brings them forgiveness on the wayward path that they were previously on, 
It prevents them from the future sin that they would have committed if they've not turned around and headed back on a straight path. That multitude of sin, both past and what could have been the future if they'd not turned around, are all covered. And Peter uses the same word covered, which is a Greek word, kalipto. And it says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other, for love covers a multitude of sins. The same word that James uses in the book of James, Peter used. And the intervention of a loving Christian through prayer or patience or perseverance will not only save a person from accumulating more sins in their life and making a greater mess of their life, but it also will spare the church from damage of a bad reputation from one of those brothers or sisters in Christ. But James doesn't fudge on his claim that real faith produces genuine patience. But sometimes we must step forward to accompany our prayers. We can pray for somebody, and we should, that's on a wayward path. But sometimes if we are right in our own hearts and we have the right opportunity, we need to come alongside that person to help them with deliberate words and actions. In other words, patience is not an excuse for being passive. Faith is not an excuse for inaction. If James has taught us anything, he's made it clear, as I've said over and over during this series, that wisdom is faith in action. It's not just faith. We need to take action on it. And if you're considering whether to get involved in another person's life who's straying from the word, with a word of encouragement, of relief, with correction, first, check your mo motives. Why are you doing that? Why do you want to go after that person who's on the wayward path? Second, we need to immerse ourselves in prayer and in God's word. We need to take a bath of God's word so we make sure that we are coming at it from a proper perspective. Be ready to apply patience also because it's a long process. Most wayward saints won't suddenly turn around from their way if you tap them on the shoulder and say, I don't think that's a good practice for your life. It can take a long, long time. So what's the application for watching out for those who are wayward? I think it's fitting that James ends his letter with these two verses. The entire letter has been a plea to make certain outward actions join our beliefs, our convictions. It is our words that match our deeds. That real faith produces genuine stability, love, humility, and patience. He is, has involved himself, James has, in our most intimate areas of our lives. And he has done so with the spirit of conviction and care. James' entire letter is exemplified by his own call to restore those wayward sinners to the path of life. And his final address in these last two verses are to his original readers of this letter, but it could just easily be applied to us because the scripture wasn't necessarily written to us, but it was written for us. And we need to understand and see it from the perspective that James was writing it in. Like James could have said, I've come to your rescue in this letter and I have invested my time in giving my thoughts to you in specific areas where you have gone astray. Now you do the same for those who are struggling. The final appeal involves three essential principles. 
that we need to keep in mind. The first one is there are occasions where we need to get involved with removing the specks from our, our fellow Christians' eyes and helping those who have gone astray. Just as we need to be ready, ready to receive that correction ourselves because none of us are speckless. We all have flecks of metal or sin in our eyes or in our lives that we could be corrected on also. We can't do that out of a sign of contempt or hatred, but only out of a sign of compassion and love for our fellow believers. Second, the entire process must be under the direction and control of the Holy Spirit. We can't go on a fleshly ego trip when we try to help other believers that are struggling. It can't be something prompted by our pride saying, well, I'm holy, so I'm going to help you to become more holy too. It must be rather bathed in humility and gentleness. There's no room for haste or rage or vengeance. We must portray the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And this is one way to determine, am I qualified? Am I ready to help another believer? Do you, does your life exemplify what's written in the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verse 22 and 23? But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Do our lives exemplify those fruits of the Spirit? If they do, we can be in a position to help other believers that are struggling. And third, our motive and attitude is just as important as our action. Sometimes those whom we correct won't respond positively. In fact, they'll become very negative toward us, even harshly to our efforts. But they should never be able to point back at us and say, I know what you do on Saturday nights, so who are you to point to my sins? They need to know that our heart is genuine. When our hearts and our attitudes consist of constant compassion, eventually those repentant sinners will return to God's way because they'll see our lives and that we've loved them all along regardless of what they've gone through. Remember, when you intrude in another person's life, when you invade their privacy, their wayward ways, you're saving a person from a path of destruction. You're helping them to, to realize there are no U-turns. You need to stay on the straight path. Now, admittedly, this is one of the most difficult subjects when you're in the ministry and all of us are in the ministry. It's not me up here preaching on Sundays that constitutes the ministry. It's our daily lives out in the world, touching, rubbing shoulders, rubbing elbows with those that we work with or those that we con congregate with. But it's one of the most difficult things to draw a wayward sinner back into the fold. It's not popular, it's not glamorous, and it's certainly not easy, and it's not always received well by those who we're trying to help. Frequently, it leads to misunderstanding when the heart is not prepared by God to return to Him. It can be a great blessing, though, when the Spirit works in repentance on that person's heart, both for the one who is helping the wayward believer and the one who has been corrected. And now, we've come to the conclusion of the book of James. Fourteen different lessons just in that small book. 
Wisdom is faith in action. And I hope you take that at least as a nugget with you from our study in James. And I pray that you've learned the lessons that we've gone over and have enjoyed it as much as I have of preparing for these messages. In my speaking, I think we should be systematic in our approach to Scripture. And what does systematic mean? It means you take the verses within the chapters, within the book, and look at them from a whole and then compare them to other Scriptures that relate to that. And it prevents us from cherry-picking verses out to fit our own personal theology. We need to be very careful of doing that. And that's why I like a systematic study through a book at a time. And I really struggled on what to do, where to go from here, what book to look at next. And I had several in mind, but I settled on the good news according to John. It's a riveting story about the life of Christ. And it's going to be, just to prepare you, it's going to be an extended series, quite some number of weeks or months. But I will have the sign to be able to change every once in a while during that series. But the, by the end of that series, you'll know more about the life of John and who he was than you ever thought possible. And more importantly, it will draw us into an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ that most of us have never had in our lives. As we see the Gospel of John, which is unique among the Gospels, the other three are harmonized with each other. John is completely different. It has some of the same information and stories, but it's not related in the same way. So next week, we're just going to have an introduction, and the title will be, Who is John? And we're going to look at the life of John and where he came from and why he was, of all people, uniquely qualified not only to write a gospel account, the good news account of Jesus Christ, but he wrote three letters to believers and he wrote the entire book of Revelation. He had a special ministry. And he was Christ's closest disciple. John referred to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. And that's where we'll start next week. Let us close in prayer. Father, we do thank you so much for your love, your goodness, your mercy to us. As we have opportunity, Father, as you give us opportunities to help wayward believers back onto the path of life and the path of truth, help us to do so with a clean heart. Help us to, to represent and, and show forth the fruits of the Spirit in our own lives and help us to live a life that's pleasing to you and according to your word, Father. Prepare our hearts this week for next week's lesson. We also pray for those that are in need of your healing touch, Father. We pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward. Enjoy your journey and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's word.